Welcome! I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six-Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosher and I get to hang around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is Ken Pratt. He was raised in the small farming community of Dayton, Oregon, where he learned the value of having a strong work ethic among other small-town values. Following that strong work ethic, he wrote late at night for seven years to complete the first novel in his Matt Bannister series, Willow Falls, while also working a full-time job and raising a family with his wife, Kathy. Kim writes about real-life issues in a Western setting in the rough-and-wild Pacific Northwest. His Matt Bannister series is now 11 books strong, and while Ken enjoys writing, he also writes with a purpose, to show how God works in our lives even when we do not see it until we look back. He states, I do not write to be a bestseller or for wealth. I write to bring hope into the lives of the hopeless and encourage the disheartened through the lives of the characters and God's providence in my stories. There is always hope, and that is the purpose of my books. Now a full-time author, Ken is joining me today from his home in Lincoln City on the beautiful Oregon coast which he tells me is about as far west in the Pacific time zone as you can get. (laughs) Welcome, friend, and thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for having me on your program. I appreciate it. I touched briefly on your journey as a writer, but tell me a little bit more about it, because I know it's rather interesting. (laughs) Gosh, first, let me start by saying I did not grow up in your normal kind of home. I wasn't read to, and I didn't read. Then when I was in fourth grade, I wrote something in class, and the teacher came up and grabbed it. She read what I wrote and said, you should be a writer when you grow up. I never forgot that. I don't remember her really ever saying anything else to me, but that one thing always stuck. I didn't like reading, but I lived my junior and senior year with my aunt and uncle, and they didn't watch TV very much, and so my aunt handed me a book called Tisha. It was about a 19-year-old school teacher from Forest Grove, Oregon, who went up to Alaska to teach school in 1920, I believe. And it was a great book. And that kind of started me reading a lot of Louis L'Amour Westerns and other Westerns, and I enjoyed them. But I never thought about being a writer until a bit later on. I started writing, I guess you can call them kind of song lyrics as they are. It was just a way to work with my emotions and things like that. I enjoyed writing in general, and I did that for a long time and wrote over 700 of them. They became a journal, and they're locked away. I do not share those. I decided to write a story, a book, and the book was going to be about my first year working in Alaska. At the end of my freshman year, I went up to Alaska to work in a fish cannery. I was only 16. I wasn't even old enough to work there, but I had a bit of a beard and could lie on the application, (laughs) and I got hired. My brother worked up there, and he told me, do not apply to this place over here. And he made it very clear, don't do it. But I did. I had to live in a makeshift tent at Tent City, and it was horrible. And it was really nasty, but I did it. And so I decided I'd write about that. And so I spent seven years writing on paper. And I remember some of the things that happened there, and I don't know the full stories of any of them, but I just connected links and decided to come up with a storyline and spent a lot of time doing that. I did that late at night, and then I was in a car accident and had a brain injury, bruised the left, right, and top lobes of my brain. I was off of work for two years, lost my career in the funeral business. It took me two years to recover. What's interesting about that, and the reason I bring it up, is because I could show you on the paper where I went back to writing after the accident, and the handwriting had changed, 
and the depth was just greater. It just changed everything. And I look at that now and I say, wow, that's, I hate to say that's a blessing, but kind of it was. In looking back in retrospect, when you say it's God's providence, that's what you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And saw the blessing. Oh, yeah. And other factors, too, because that accident saved my marriage and it saved me and it saved my wife and it changed our life where we really weren't serving the Lord the way we should have been. And so that accident took us back into serving the Lord the way we should. Going to church prior to the accident? No, I was thinking I was too good for it, to be honest. It's one of those funny things where the guys I work with say, you need to be going to church because they all did. And I would say, yeah, I know. But I went on Saturday nights and didn't want to get up on Sunday mornings. And so I didn't. And we just weren't living there the way that we should have been. At the time, our marriage was in a rut. And that accident kind of it drew us closer together as we recovered. I started going back to church. And I decided one day look at my book and I said, you know, what good can come out of this book? If somebody was to read it, honestly. Even if it became like a bestseller, what's the point? And I thought they'd learn how to can a salmon. That's about it. So I put it down. One thing I learned at the funeral home is because it hurt when I wasn't there anymore was you're given God-given gifts and you're given God-given talents and everyone has to find what they are. My gift is serving people. I like to help people. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel satisfied. I worked at the steel mill for two years and I made lots of money, but I hated going to work. I worked in maintenance at a retirement community for seven years and I made far less money, but I loved it because you're helping people. And that's a gift of service. I enjoy that. It was fulfilling. I discovered that my talent would be writing because I enjoyed doing it. Doesn't mean I was good at it, really, but I enjoyed doing it. But that talent was there, even if it was latent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because it's God-given. You have it. You just got to build it. And it'll be fulfilling. So I decided I'm going to write. You can take your talents and you can use them for gain. But if God's going to give you the talents, then I believe use them for God's purposes. For me, that's giving people hope. You don't have to look far into my life to know it's tough, but there's always hope. How did Matt Bannister come out of that? I wanted to reach my kind of people, the country people, the farmers, the country folks, small town, western ranchers. So I thought, here's the thing, though, it can't be too preachy, but if you could just show how God maneuvers in our lives and that you can have a personal relationship, you know, where it's not just bowing down and being controlled. No, it goes both ways. You serve the Lord and he helps you. Little things that you would not imagine can become big things later on. And you look back and you say, that's a blessing in a lot of ways. Matt Bannister was a character that I came up with because I always had in the back of my mind a desire to write about this gunfighter. The driving motivation behind him is protecting people from the harm that he discovered when he was a teenager in Little Falls. Him and his friends were attacked by these outlaws, and he lost his good friend. And so Matt's driving force is justice, because if you take these people off the streets, they can't hurt somebody else. And, and that's basically what he tells his Aunt Mary, because she was wanting him to give up the badge and live a safe life. And he said, I can't. That's not who I am. The life I want to live is fighting for justice and protecting people from people who hurt them. And I think that's what makes a good lawman, is wanting to make a difference. But at the same time, I wanted him to be a believer and to rely upon the Lord in all of his circumstances. 
In one of your books, Blood Vengeance, you take a hard look at what happens when the paths of revenge and forgiveness cross. Is that how you go about setting up the difficult paradigm for Matt Bannister to solve? And when you're writing that, does your perspective change or come to a better understanding of human nature? Well, yeah, it does, because there are two parts of human nature. You have a part of vengeance, and people want justice. And when it comes to justice, people want it because the bad guys deserve it. But even when you're looking at justice, there is still a part of compassion you have, because when you, when you love people, you don't want to harm them. So you do have compassion for some people, even if they're done horrible things, but you still have to continue with the justice, if that makes sense at all. An element of mercy. Yeah, yeah. I, everyone's a human being. You can't look at everyone and judge them by what they've done, because you have to consider where have they been and why are they doing this. And to me, that's always intriguing. Why are you the way you are? Matt's story, sometimes in the books, well, Willa Falls, I think, brought it up. He talks to the people he was arresting and tries to figure out why they are the way they are. When does theology in a story become too much, or does it? I'll put it to you this way. We went to a church for, oh gosh, about five years, and it got to the point where I'd rather not go, because every time we went, we heard the same thing. You never really grow. You put on your scuba gear and you go to church and you're expecting to dive in deeper into what the Bible says and who God is and who Jesus is. And you get there and you hear these songs and you think, I don't even know what that means, really. And then you hear the sermon. We are just floating on top of the surface here. There is so much more. It's so much deeper. But yet every week we come here and we're just floating on our backs and I'm tired of it. Where's the depth? And so we went to a different church where we got the depth. And I think with every book, I try to bring out a deeper understanding of the relationship with the Lord and also the providence of the Lord and how he happens to work within our lives. Because he's not just a God sitting up in heaven waiting to be served and worship. He's actively right here with us every day. Although we don't know it, he's looking out for tomorrow. But I told my kids one time that it's like we're standing downtown Portland between all those skyscrapers and all the cars driving by and the people on the sidewalks. And we look around and all we can see is concrete and people and, and just problems everywhere. We don't know what's around the corner or what's on the next block. God's view is very different. He's standing on top of the skyscraper. He has a six block view and he's saying, just go straight. You're going to be okay. Always, all the time. And so we just rely upon him. Does the simplicity of the Western genre lend itself to that kind of philosophizing? No, not at all, because a Western genre is really not that simple. It's straightforward when you compare it to a technological thriller that's on the current bestseller list. A Western has a certain storyline, a certain setting. You're able to work in other stories. You're able to work in your philosophy. It is a little bit simpler when it comes to modern-day writing. I mean, I wrote a book about a modern-day story, and you have to take everything in consideration there, electronics, all kinds of stuff. For the Western, it is a little bit more open. You have an open room. And back then, there wasn't as much atheism as there is now. Most people knew who the Lord was and believed the Bible. But what I do with it is I try to bring up impossible situations, scary situations, frightening situations, which can happen even now and show how their faith and hope can bring them through the light in their life. I'll put it to you this way. In the story I'm writing, finishing up right now, Matt is in a bad way. He's virtually helpless for the first time in his life. There's nothing he can do. He's a tough guy. He's a smart guy. But all he can do to help himself is just try to remain calm. 
Because it's a bad situation. He's helpless, but he's not hopeless because there's still that one flickering candle that lights up the room. It doesn't take a big flame to light up a room. And that one little candle can be that one little flicker of hope in the Lord. That's where he's putting his hope. Your latest Matt Bannister novel, The Eleventh, I believe, is Legacies of Spring. And it's currently sitting at number one on Amazon's Christian Fiction bestseller list. How does that make you feel? Did you ever imagine that would happen? No, I never did. When I finished The Falls, I tried to publish it because my wife said it was good. And people said it was good. and So I tried to publish it through a larger publisher and try to get an agent. And an agent said to me, you're never going to get it published because it's too secular for the Christian market and too Christian for the secular market. You're trying to hit right down through that line, and there's no market for that. And I was like, well, now that's disappointing. That's discouraging. But I said, you know what? I wrote it for the Lord. I'm not going to worry about it. So I wrote Sweet Home. And the same thing. It was too secular for the Christian market, too Christian for the secular market. We're just trying to shoot that narrow line right up the middle. That's a goal, isn't it? So I said, just write another one. I know that you had Willow Falls self-published to begin with, and then you found another small publisher that published Willow Falls and the follow-up, but they didn't do anything with them, and it didn't go anywhere. I was kind of in limbo. I did not want to publish the rest of my series, number three and number four, through the small publisher. Mike Bray was a friend of mine on Facebook. Then I discovered he was with Wolfpack Publishing. So I messaged him and asked if he would be interested in republishing my series. He asked me to send him the next manuscript, and I did, and signed with him. And then, I don't know, it was probably a month later, month and a half later or so, we had gone down to Central Oregon, and I was walking along and got a notice on my phone to check my email. There was a link, and I stopped. And I said, no way. Willow Falls was number one. I think Sweet Home was two. And I was just stunned. Absolutely stunned. I could not believe it. It's a life-changing moment. Oh, it was unbelievable. Seriously. If you knew me, and if you knew how hard I worked on it, and if you knew how many people told me I would never do it, that was one thing that always stuck with me. And I really should tell you this, because when I was writing Willow Falls, I almost did not do it because I ran into a problem. I ran into 1882. What was Christmas? Did they have Christmas trees? Did they decorate Christmas trees? Did they believe in Santa Claus? I had these questions, and I couldn't find an answer. Then one day, I was so frustrated that I was leaving Walmart. It was one evening, and I was coming home, and I was said, man, Lord, I just can't find any information alone. Maybe I'm just wasting my time. And I pulled into Goodwill, and I walked in there, and on top of the bookshelf was this book called Pioneer Women. So I picked up Pioneer Women and just kind of flipped through the pages, and there it was. Christmas, 1882, answered every single question I had. I said, man, thank you, Jesus. This is just perfect. And it encouraged me. And I went home and continued writing. Now, I will tell you that I have been told all my life that I could never write a book. I mentioned that to my mom. I said, I think I want to write a book. And she said, that's a pipe dream. And I said, thanks. I heard that I wasn't smart enough. I heard I wouldn't finish it, and I heard all kinds of stuff. Finally, I did not tell anyone I was writing a book. I did not tell anyone except my wife until it was done. Because I didn't want to hear the criticism. The one thought that got me through, when I got discouraged, and I got discouraged a lot, the one thing that got me through writing Willow Falls was thinking back to my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Schmidt, when she said, you should be a writer when you grow up. Because other than my wife and kids, that was the only encouragement I had. 
like I said, I didn't tell anybody else. When that day came in Central Oregon, you know, I was standing on the sidewalk, but I wanted to sit down. I just could not believe it. Wolfpack Publishing republished Willow Falls and Sweet Home. They became number one, and it's been a wonderful thing. And almost every book since then has been a bestseller. It's been amazing. Quite a wild ride. Oh, yeah, because it's changed my life. I mean, it honestly has. It's changed everything. I was able to quit working and write full time. You know, that was always a dream, but it never would have happened elsewhere. But it's been fantastic. Willow Falls, it's almost got a thousand reviews. I mean, it's incredible. And it's still selling. All that credit goes to Wolfpack Publishing because I couldn't sell dirt to my wife if she wanted to plant a flower garden, you know? And so (laughs) they're doing a fantastic job and I could not be happier. They're awesome. I'm sure there was some blessings from the Lord involved with that as well, leading you to Wolfpack and then guiding the books into the hands of the readers that need to read them. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. The Lord has blessed us. And I'll tell you, it was kind of scary going into COVID because everything was shutting down. But the Lord has met us every month, every single month. He has met us. It's been awesome, an amazing ride. I just hope it continues and keep writing and, and keep my story going. And man, it's a dream come true. I'll just tell you the story real quick if we have time. Sure. I draw from what we experience in life. So in 2012, I lost my job and I couldn't find another one. And I was really devastated. My wife was a realtor and the market had just died. So we were financially hurting. And then in October, my wife called me up and she said, I don't know where I am. I said, well, are you out in the country? She said, no, I'm in town. I said, what town? And she goes, I don't know. She was lost and crying on the same road. She drove to work every single day. Long story short, got her home. Her doctor sent her to a specialist in Portland. They did an MRI and he went up there for the results. And he diagnosed her with early onset Alzheimer's at 45 years old and was given five to 10 years to live. Now, we have five kids, but the youngest two were 15 and 12. That was a blow. When I talk about a blow, that was one round knocked out. That was a hard one. Absolutely devastated. We ended up coming back home. It just changes your life. We ended up losing our home. We were hopeless. There was no hope for it because she was too young to take any kind of medication to slow it down. And this was aggressive. We were homeless. You know, we didn't have any money. And I couldn't find a job. I'd fly and be interviewed and come up short. You don't feel much like a man. During that time period, we ended up moving in with our older daughter in Wilhelmina, Oregon, which is a logging community. And one day, me and my two younger kids walked down to the store to buy a pop. And you're walking back towards home. They were really discouraged. And my daughter was like, Dad, how come none of my friends' dads can't find a job? And then she's like, how come none of my friends' moms have Alzheimer's? Her world was torn apart. These questions, all these hardships. We were walking across the bridge coming back home. Two log trucks drove across. And the bridge shake as these trucks came through. Log trucks are not known for going very slow. I said, Katie, how is it we can walk across this bridge right now? And it's shaking. These trucks are heavy. How come we're not scared? We're not panicking. Bridges are made by human hands. They got concrete, rebar, bolts, steel. All of it's made by humans. How come we're not scared? This bridge could fall. And they said, well, because it's a bridge. That's true. It is. And we have faith in this bridge. Can I hold up these two log trucks, right? How come we can have faith in a bridge, but we can't have faith that God's going to get us through this? God makes promises in the Bible. He does not break. We need to just be faithful and walk across this bridge of time until he's faithfully given us a new opportunity. So what we cannot do is become angry or bitter. 
We don't want to become bitter. We don't want to become angry. We're just going to have faith and we're going to walk through this time period on this bridge. And yeah, it's shaking. It's a shaky bridge, but it's designed that way. And our life is designed that way too. We can face these awful things that shake our world. We just got to walk that line and stay on the bridge and keep our eyes on the other side and we'll get through it. And that's the hope of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the Bible. We're not helpless and we're not alone. And that's what I told my kids. And it did get us through that time period. We got through it, got our own place. And then last year in January, took Kathy back to a different neurologist. And it turns out she was misdiagnosed. She does have a brain injury, but it's not a severe one. And it will never get worse. She does not have early onset Alzheimer's. And I was like, what? We've been dealing with this for eight years, and she doesn't even have it. In one sense, it was great. In another sense, it was a little bit irritating. That's okay. Glad to have the final ending of it. So now she is getting her driver's license back, getting her life back. And the Lord is awesome now. And you can see that in your writing, the experiences that you went through, you're now putting on the page. I try to keep the same kind of optimistic and love and hope. Even some of the darkest pages, you know, there you got people out there who were so lost and lonely and hurting in the world today. I just hope for those people, they'll take the time to read and maybe find the hope in the Lord. Never became a minister or anything of the such, but I hope that that's my ministry. And I hope that people are touched and they read these stories. I hope that they are encouraged. I hope they learn a little bit more. I try every book to add a different kind of flavor to it, not the same subject again and again. That's really good to hear, and I'm looking forward to you continuing the Matt Bannister series now, as I'm sure your many fans are. I'm almost done with Book 12. I hope it's well-received. Ken, thank you for being with me today. Really appreciate your time. Best of luck with all of the books, and I hope that the Matt Bannister series has a long run. Thank you so much. I appreciate you talking to me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and keep reading Westerns. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.